Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. All right, the next two messages will be on Daniel 4, and this will be our last look at Nebuchadnezzar. And I'd like to begin today with the last sentence of the chapter, and then we'll come back to the beginning. Uh, Daniel 4.37, this is the last sentence. It reads like this, And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is kind of the executive summary of this whole chapter. It's the reason this story is in the Bible. And I want to make sure we're real clear on the idea expressed here. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This kind of statement occurs over and over in scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, Psalm 31, 23. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Or Psalm 101.5, whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Question, why does God make such a big deal about pride? I think it's because our world doesn't. I've worked as a pastor for a long time now, and I've done a lot of counseling. I've had people come to me for problems with depression, anxiety, lust, doubt, addiction, lying, anger. I've never had someone make an appointment so that they could talk about their pride problems. Go to any self-help section in any bookstore, see how many books you find about developing humility. You know, pride is an irritating trait when we see it in other people. Uh, A woman was frustrated at always being corrected by her husband. Uh, It was a sign of pride that he always had to be right. And the woman decided that the next time it happened, she would have a comeback. And that moment came and she was ready and she said, you know, even a broken clock is right once a day. And her husband looked at her and said, twice. In our world, pride is looked upon as irritating at worst and as a virtue at best. I mean, we think it's part of being strong and confident and a high achiever. Like even in the church, we think of this. I've seen people removed from church leadership, from leadership positions in the church for sexual sin, for uh, financial wrongdoings, for scandals of all kinds. I can't remember ever hearing of someone removed from leadership in the church for having a proud spirit. Some of the most arrogant people in the world are people who think of themselves as spiritual giants, but we don't confront these people about their problem. A church could have a senior pastor who is arrogant and never gets confronted about his arrogance. But if that senior pastor was smoking a cigarette outside after church, you better believe he would hear about it. And I'm not advocating smoking, I'm just trying to make a point. Sometimes pride, which is sin, 
is deeply ingrained in people in the church who are thought of as spiritual giants. And that was true in Jesus's day. What I want you to notice is the language God uses to talk about this condition. He detests pride. He opposes pride. Uh, He will not endure pride. He will pay it back in full. I don't believe the writers of scripture use this language casually. I believe they use it because pride is lethal to our relationship with God and to our relationship with each other. And I want us to see why that is today. And I want us to declare war on pride. I want us to consider it an evil that needs to be confronted and dealt with. So let's look at the beginning of Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I want to stop here so we can understand the setting for this story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar liked to look on the city that he had built. Uh, Look at Daniel 4.24 for a second. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar has achieved more than anyone in human history. Babylon, which is the capital city of his empire, was the site of uh, so much building under Nebuchadnezzar that it takes uh, 126 pages just to record the inscriptions that were carved into the buildings that he had constructed. I mean, try to imagine having conquered the known world and then with essentially only human labor, virtually no machinery, designing and constructing its most renowned city. You've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Maybe the most impressive was what was known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was thought to have constructed these gardens for one of his homesick wives. She missed the trees of the mountains from her homeland, and so he built these unbelievable suspended gardens with trees and an amazingly sophisticated irrigation system just for his homesick wife. From the roof of his palace, he could see a double wall running all the way around the city. One ancient historian says the outer wall was 56 miles long. And it was so wide that you could turn a four-horse chariot around on the wall. Nebuchadnezzar had that wall built. I mean, there was simply no city like this city anywhere. The historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC wrote, In addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's city. He had built it. It would not be there if it weren't for him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. See, Nebuchadnezzar has now achieved what in our world would be considered the good life. I mean, this would be the guy that we would all go to for advice on successful living. He would be interviewed on Good Morning Babylon. (laughs) 
Now, did Nebuchadnezzar, did Nebuchadnezzar think he had a problem? No. I, I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Who wouldn't be, right? Did God think Nebuchadnezzar had a problem? See, one of the great dangers of pride is that the people who suffer from it most tend to be the most blind to it. So God launches Nebuchadnezzar on a journey that will be very long and very painful. And although Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it yet, this is the battle for his soul. He has not been in a battle yet compared to this battle because this is a battle for his soul. For Jesus said a long time ago, what does it profit a man to get in the whole world and lose his soul? Nebuchadnezzar was going to lose his soul. He would gain the whole world, but he would lose his soul. All right, let's continue at verse five. We'll read through verse 19. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under, under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From, from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an, of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. All right, let's stop here for a moment. Uh, Daniel is very concerned about this dream. He knows that this is a statement of God's judgment and the coming of severe pain on Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is very bad news for the king. 
Daniel is also concerned for himself because this is not a guy who takes bad news real well. Nebuchadnezzar has not thus far demonstrated a real open spirit to correction and rebuke. I mean, he doesn't solicit that kind of thing. Who knows what he will do with Daniel if Daniel tells him the truth because the furnace is not too far away. I'd like you to notice one thing Nebuchadnezzar gets right here. It's kind of subtle. It's clear that Daniel has bad news. Nebuchadnezzar can tell from his body language. Daniel is greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrify him. Nebuchadnezzar can read this. And so he could have decided to just stop listening. I mean, he could have made it abundantly clear to Daniel that he only wanted to hear good news with a positive spin on it. But he said, Daniel, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. In other words, he's saying, Daniel, I want you to tell me the truth. Like, don't sugarcoat it, no matter how bad it might be for me. I will not punish you for it. I want the truth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not spiritually mature enough to act on the truth. Uh, that will take more time and a lot of suffering. Uh, but when that day comes, and it will come, and we'll read about it next week, Nebuchadnezzar would know what he needed to do because of what Daniel says here in these coming words. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a trusted friend in Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar says at a key moment, when he could have not said this, he says, tell me the truth, no matter what. And eventually, from one perspective, that's actually what saves him. And so I want to challenge you right here. Do you have a Daniel in your life? Do you have someone in your life who will tell you the truth about the pride in your life? We all need a trusted friend who will tell us the truth. We all need a trusted friend who tells us the things that no one else wants to tell us. There was a point in my life when I was working through the 12 steps of recovery and I got to the step where I had to do a moral inventory. And so I went away and I asked God to point out all the sin and all the wrongdoing in my life. And I had about two pages of stuff. The next step was to meet with a trusted friend to confess. And so I scheduled a meeting with one of my closest, most trusted friends, and I read the list to him. And when I got to the end, I was so embarrassed, I could hardly even look up at him. I mean, I talked about anger and lust and a bunch of other sins that I would not feel comfortable telling you about. And he told me some hard things. He told me some hard truth. And then he asked me to look him in the eye and he said, Matt, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. Wow. And that made me feel so good. I wanted to make up more stuff about myself. You see, here's the deal with the common struggles that many of us have, like anger and sexual sins and addictions and so on. At least we know we've got a problem. People far from God know they've got problems in these areas, but pride comes with a blind spot. So a Pharisee prays next to a tax collector and actually says to God, God, thank you so much that I'm not like that man. Thanks that I pray and I fast and I give. Thanks that I'm spiritually superior to that man. And the Pharisee is so full of pride that he despises the person next to him. He's a spiritual nothing, but he thinks he's spiritually advanced. 
This is the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. He's so full of self-righteous superiority that he despises his prodigal younger brother. He thinks he's morally and spiritually superior. And this happens still. It happens in the church. And so I want to challenge you to have a Daniel in your life. If you don't have a Daniel in your life, would you just pray and ask God to lead you to one? If you do sometime this week, will you go to that person and simply ask her or ask him, tell me the truth. Do I have any pride issues in my life? Do I have any blind spots? Nebuchadnezzar gets one thing right. He doesn't get a, a much else right, but he gets one thing right. He asks for the truth and eventually that's what saves him. And we'll continue by looking at verses 19 to 27 in just a moment. In 2020, Psychology Today released an article titled The Art of Humility, Why It's Time for an Urgent Revival of Spiritual Modesty. In this article, Dr. Schaffner argues that humility is a form of spiritual modesty that is triggered by an understanding of our place in the order of things. And while she's addressing something that, while spiritual isn't necessarily religious, her understanding in this article is reflected in the characters in this chapter of Daniel. Both King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel understood or experienced this push to humility that potentially challenges us today. The first character in the story is what Matt's been talking about, King Nebuchadnezzar. The king doesn't recognize or understand his place in the order of things. Rather, he's placed himself firmly in the center of reality. It's not surprising as a leader, and most of us would probably say that we operate in a similar mindset in li and that life revolves around us. But because of his position, King Nebuchadnezzar interprets a dream in a way that praises himself rather than understanding that the dream is a warning. His lack of humility brings personal embarrassment and destruction. And then we have Daniel. The humility of Daniel is a bit more hidden, and yet Daniel displays a sort of humility that aligns with the humility discussed by Dr. Schaffner. Daniel is living in a foreign land. He's working under a king who has more or less destroyed his people and culture. It would have been easy for Daniel to grow with bitterness, with anger, with resentment, and it would be easy to use those feelings as a way to justify a lack of action when he hears this dream. And yet Daniel doesn't do that. He knows that God has placed him with an ability to interpret this dream. And so understanding the place in the order of things, Daniel interprets the dream. In humility to God and God's plan, Daniel acts. Some of us today are carrying a heart and mind that reflects King Nebuchadnezzar. We are struggling with or blinded by our own inward focus. We're missing things from God. We're missing opportunities to hear and to heal. We're missing opportunities to worship and serve. Dr. Schaffner would say that we don't see the order of things, but rather we see our own order in the midst of things. And some of us are carrying a heart and a mind of Daniel, right? We're living in places that may be confusing or challenging, and yet with humility, we know that in some way, God is working. There's a third character in the story, and it's the character Matt is going to be talking about in a little bit. So let's rejoin Matt and let's reflect on what humility looks like for us today and how we as individuals and as a community may shift some of our thoughts and actions so that we better understand our lives in humility and with our lives with resilient faith. 
All right, let's pick up where we left off in the text, Daniel 4, verses 19 to 26. Belteshazzar answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field with its roots remaining in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. All right, I want to stop here. This is a strange dream. Uh, At the center of it is this great tree, and it expresses the reality of Nebuchadnezzar's life. Everyone looks up to him. The tree is visible to the whole earth. He he receives constant praise and admiration and recognition. Uh, Everyone depends on him. This tree provides food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, nestling places for the birds. He lives with constant reminders of how important he is. Everyone does what he wants them to do. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. This is a man who understands power, how to acquire it, how to protect it, how to use it to further his agenda. This is a picture of human, proud, stubborn self-sufficiency. I have accomplished all this on my own. I need no one and no thing. There's a lot of achievement. It's an amazing city, but there's no acknowledgement of dependence on God or that every breath he takes, every thought he thinks is a gift. There's no sense that one day he's going to be accountable to God, that he's to be a steward and a servant to this great city and this great empire with people in it. The church leader of many centuries ago named Gregory the Great wrote this, Pride makes me think that I am the cause of my achievements and that I deserve my abilities and leads me to despise other people that don't measure up. Pride causes this illusion of self-sufficiency. I made myself. I deserve all that I have. So I want to ask you, how about you? Like, are you ever slow to acknowledge your limitations and dependence on God? Do you ever forget that whatever abilities you have, and they may appear to be very impressive, they're gifts from God for which you ought to be grateful every day. 
you ever find yourself motivated to make people around you or under you know that you are in control? Are you ever tempted to seek power or recognition or influence or praise for its own sake? See, the irony that Daniel pronounces here is Nebuchadnezzar is going to have his career interrupted by a prolonged bout of insanity. And the truth, of course, is that spiritually, he was already quite insane. I mean, he was completely out of touch with spiritual reality. Uh, God is going to have to act. God is going to have to take this action because information alone is not going to bring about the development of humility in Nebuchadnezzar. Pride has become too deeply woven into his way of seeing and thinking and living. His agenda, his kingdom, his priorities are all that he can see, all that he can think about. So God will have to interrupt his life. God is going to place Nebuchadnezzar under what we might call the spiritual discipline of being interrupted. You know, there's a real interesting connection between our response to interruptions and the presence of humility or pride in our life. How do you handle being interrupted? Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about what might be called the ministry of interruptions. This is what he wrote. In Christian community, one service we should perform for each other is that of active helpfulness. This means simple assistance in trivial matters. There is a multitude of these things wherever people live. Nobody is too good for the humblest service. One who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness entail is usually taking the importance of his own career too seriously. And now you need to understand that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote that, lest you think that he was kind of a slacker with nothing to do, he was a writer, a preacher, a leader, a president of an underground seminary, a leader of a resistant movement against the Nazis, and one of the uh, one of a handful of the most influential Christians in any century. He writes this, God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and requests. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. How do you do with that? Tomorrow, someone is going to interrupt you. Maybe at work, someone will need a favor. Maybe at home, someone will need help with a task. Maybe on the road, you'll see someone with a car problem. Maybe someone you don't even know real well needs to be listened to or encouraged or noticed. You know, this is convicting for me. One of the most unforgettable stories Jesus ever told was a story about an interruption. Two religious leaders, real spiritual guys, are on a journey, uh, maybe to do a real important ministry assignment. And when God crossed their path with someone who lay beaten and bleeding and needing help, but they had things to do. They had places to go. They couldn't be interrupted. And you know, I'm a lot like that uh, with a, a lot of my time. Uh, I, it was a Samaritan, you know, someone uh, all of Jesus' listeners were taught to despise and look down on their whole life long. Uh, they, they were, you know, they thought that they were spiritually superior to. It was a Samaritan who loved enough to stop and show kindness to let God interrupt him. A Samaritan. So tomorrow, if you run into someone who needs help, if an opportunity for serving arises at work or at home, just pause for a moment and ask God if maybe he's crossing your path. Maybe he is. 
Because I'll tell you, if you're too busy to be interrupted by God, you're just too busy. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is about to be interrupted. And so in verse 27, Daniel does a remarkable thing. This is one of the most amazing verses in this book, maybe the whole Bible. Daniel has now given the dream and the interpretation. He could stop there. But look at verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then your prosperity will continue. A lot of times in situations like this, when someone needs to be confronted, like we pull back, usually out of fear, from saying the hardest truth that they most need to hear. Well, Daniel could have done that. He could have pulled back. He could have just given the interpretation of the dream. He could have been quite vague, like, you know, work on your spiritual life, king. What does he say to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, this furnace man? He says, renounce your sins. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you used that phrase with someone? Like if I was arguing with my wife, Kathy, Kathy, renounce your sins. Daniel 4.27 is not a real good idea. Daniel uses it here with no sense of self-righteousness, with no sense of spiritual superior, superiority. It gives him no pleasure to say these words. He loved this man, but he says them. He says them to an arrogant and ruthless king who could have him killed with one single gesture. He says them with breathtaking honesty, your majesty, renounce your sins by doing what is right. Renounce the wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, or it could be translated the poor. And you've got to understand, Daniel is doing some real serious meddling here. When he says do what is right, it could be translated do justice. It's in, it, it includes the notion of a fair distribution of resources. It is in part an economic term. He's now addressing Nebuchadnezzar's use of power and wealth. He says, break with your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, by being kind to the poor. Daniel doesn't say, keep living the way you've lived, keep ruling the way you've ruled. Just, you know, theoretically, theologically acknowledge that God is in control. Daniel now is messing with how much money is going into the hanging gardens and how much more walls need to get built around the cities, messing with how many more places are going to get constructed with the king's name inscribed on them and how many more human beings are going to be exiled like Daniel and conscripted into slavery and treated like tools and objects and beaten and killed in the process. Daniel is doing some very heavy meddling now. This is not just about Nebuchadnezzar changing the name of the gods he worships, although it includes that. You know, I've heard this passage taught on several occasions, and I've always heard it strictly in terms of Nebuchadnezzar's attitude towards God. This verse 27 is rarely pointed out. But according to Daniel, the main behavior, the main action that God is calling Nebuchadnezzar to take is here in verse 27. Because at the heart of Christian humility lies a concern to serve people, to let go of my foolish arrogance and agenda, to humbly receive grace from God and serve the people that he loves so much. And especially to notice and see and love and serve those that Jesus called the least of these. Renounce your sins by doing what is right 
and your wickedness by being kind to the poor. You know, the reason God opposes pride so deeply is not that he's easily threatened by high achievers. It's not. The reason God is opposed to pride so deeply is not that he's obsessed with getting credit for everything. He's not that kind of person. The reason God is so opposed to pride is not that it makes him feel better to have a lot of people running around uh, cringing a lot. He's not, he's not that kind of God. I remember hearing a teacher say one time that no one is allowed to be prideful except God, and it's okay for him to be proud because he's God. It's not true. The greatest expression of humility in all time and space is practiced in the interaction of God in the Trinity. God is the most humble being in the universe. And that's why Jesus Christ, God became flesh, was the most authentically humble man who ever walked this earth. And his kingdom looked nothing like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He did not build lots of buildings with slave labor that had his name inscribed on them. And his destiny was not a tree of glory. It was a tree of shame. And before that tree, before the cross, there is no room for pride. For there was none in the one who hung there. The reason God is so opposed to pride is because pride is anti-community. It's anti-servanthood. It's a violation of the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pride is the condition of the heart that is most fundamentally incapable of love. And so Paul says words like, love does not boast, it is not proud. Because pride whispers to me to be kind only to those people that, can use, that I can use or that happen to touch me emotionally. You know, pride tells me to view people as a means to an end, to value them only if they're useful to me to helping me achieve my agenda, to build my little Babylon, to meet my emotional needs. Pride causes me to be judgmental towards people with problems. It feeds my sense of spiritual superiority and it destroys love. And the inability to love is the darkest spiritual sickness of all. Pride causes me to not even think about or see those who are most needy, who are poor or oppressed. Pride causes me to think that maybe the fact that I'm not in a state of obvious material need is something that I deserve because of my virtue or my hard work. God is adamantly opposed to pride, and I'm so glad he is, although it scares me sometimes. And we all need to hear this. God is as capable today as he was over two and a half thousand years ago of shutting down anyone, any little kingdom, any life, any career, any family, any church, any organization that gets so caught up in its own little achievements that it violates the humility of the Trinity. And so I'm asking today that we declare war on this as individuals and as a church. Just let go of pride, crucify it on the tree of shame, and when you wake up in the morning, remember that when you open your eyes, when you take a breath, it's a gift. And acknowledge your utter dependence on God. And find a Daniel somewhere in your life and ask him or her to help you with your blind spots. And let God interrupt you every once in a while in this week. You know, because the whole world doesn't depend on you. And now and again, notice and remember the least of these. And join us again next time as we see what God can do with a humble life.
All right, let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would help us to learn what it is that your spirit wants us to learn from this passage of scripture. Uh, we know that you, you hate pride, you despise pride. And sometimes we can't even see it in our lives. So I pray that you would bring those people into our lives who are willing to, like Daniel did, speak the truth to us so that we can see our pride the way you see it. And we, we can begin to root it out of our lives. God, would you help us to identify with this most profound characteristic of Jesus Christ, his humility, as we live our days? Help us to be interrupted from you, by, by you, uh, when you have assignments for us. Help us to uh, see uh, the poor and the needy and the oppressed and to, uh, to notice them, to love them, to see you in them. You tell us that when we see them, that we see Christ, that, that we're to love the least of these as we love Christ. Help us to do that. Help us to live that way. Um, help us to, to change this about us individually and as a church and help us to reflect more of your love to this world. Help us to be a brighter light that shines in this world for you so that people will be drawn to you as a result of how we live our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.